Amen. Thank you, Ryan, and thanks, team, for leading us in worship. My name is Eric, and I get to pastor down here at Bethel Bible Church at the downtown campus. And I want to add my greeting and welcome. We're delighted that you're here. We are convinced that God has a word for you this morning. And as we get into that, I kind of want to just grease your proverbial soul skids a little bit, if I may. I want to kind of get our, our hearts, minds, our thoughts, and feelings moving in the right direction. I want to tell you about, oh, not quite 30 years ago, I began the serious and earnest courtship of my future bride. I don't mean the one I'm going to marry later. I mean the one that is actually my bride now. At that point, she was still as yet future. See, time gets really weird when you tell these kinds of stories. My as-to-be-yet-future bride. And one of the ways I began to, to woo her with my brilliant mastery of the English language is I told her, listen, I, I want you to understand right up front, this is, this is how I roll. This is how, this is how I feel. This is how I relate. This is how I, how I will, will give affection and attention. I want you to understand that anytime you and I are in relationship, you will figure and you will feature prominently in my affections. Yeah. No, praise God, I am not that stupid because that would not have gone over well at all, despite all the demand for this wonderful mixture of Ted Koppel and Howdy Doody that I am, I didn't think there was going to be a whole lot of other opportunities to have affection and attention with another human being. And so I tried to communicate and convey with great consistency, no, no, you're it. You're it. You are the one with whom I find all worth. Like, you're worth everything else. I forego and forsake all others. You're it. Now, that was not given to me by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven to have that level of wisdom. And praise God, she believed me. And yet it's compelling to think how many of us, when we think about this Jesus, whom we've gathered corporately on all three floors, by the way, last Sunday, as Lauren mentioned, for all three floors, hereafter we'll have on two floors our worship service or watching remotely, We've come to proclaim the excellencies of this Jesus. But for how many of us, really and truly and functionally, Jesus is not preeminent as that text just describes. He's prominent. He's important. He's kind of a big deal. But then there's the everyday walking around moment by moment life that we all live. Well, that prepares us for our big day and our big idea this day, when we finally get to the central paragraph of the entire book of Colossians, our big idea goes like this. Jesus is preeminent. Now, the title of the sermon is Supreme or Supremacy, because I want you to have all of these synonyms for Jesus. Supremacy, uh, preeminence, that he is not just prominent. He is absolutely first place. Now, we are in our third sermon in our summer sermon series in the book of Colossians. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to that little prison epistle. One of these four epistles that Paul writes as he's in his first Roman imprisonment where the gospel is unchained despite the fact that Paul is in chains. God's got a way of getting it done. And one of the ways God gets it done is with the apostolic teaching of his word, telling us who God is, what he has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. That's the gospel. If you spend any time at Bethel, I hope you've heard that over and over again. The gospels, the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in the past to redeem us to himself in the present and to one another in the present because we are from the future. That's the gospel. 
And Paul writes this little epistle to these people that he's never met. The, the church at Colossae was planted by an apostolic delegation by a man named Epaphras who has an ecclesiological problem. And so he travels all the way from south central Turkey to Rome to visit Paul in prison to say, we've got this creeping heresy and error that's coming into the church, this local problem. And Paul interestingly responds with a universal truth. So through time and space, whatever local heresies or errors come into a church, our Bibles are arming and equipping us and energizing us with universal truth. And that truth is the supremacy of Christ. More practically, more precisely, it is confronting and correcting conflict with the kingship of Christ. Oh, let's say you were in the fourth century AD and you began to wonder, hmm, is there a time when Jesus was actually created? Oh, you know what they did? They went to the book of Colossians. July 4th, AD 325 in the Council of Nicaea. July 4th, freedom. And they said, no, there was never a time when Christ was not because they addressed a local issue and error with a universal truth. So the Apostle Paul is writing, we're in Colossians chapter 1, as Ryan's already read for us. We're going to begin in verse 15. I want to just remind you, Paul's sitting in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier under the Caesarship of Nero. What he says in this paragraph is high treason, punishable by torture and death, and Paul dictates it verbally anyway. It's a wonderful, massive truth. He starts off in Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 15. He, this Jesus, let me just pause. Because this he, it matters that you know who Paul is talking about. He's already given us one very long run-on sentence in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, talking about what God has done in Christ to justify us. God found us guilty. He declares us righteous. God chooses to see us differently. He finds us guilty, changes his mind about us, and declares that we are righteous. And then verses 9 through 20 is one very long sentence. We tackled the first half last week where Paul talks about our sanctification. Since we have been saved, since we've been justified, God is doing all of these things in us, transferring us into life, delivering us into light, all of these things. This Jesus has done this. Speaking of Jesus, and after this wonderful section on doctrine, Paul breaks out into doxology. Now, let me be very pastoral and precise. Any good doctrine worth its salt should always produce doxology, meaning praise and worship. And our praise and our worship informs our theology, and our theology informs and influences our worship. And there's a cycle, and there's a, a circular process here. We sing things together corporately, and we agree with one another, and we hear the songs that we've just sung, and it's true, and we are reaffirmed, and then it energizes our theology, and the things that we believe are true amplify and exponentially increase our praise and our worship. What we're going to get into here, this paragraph that you've already heard read, is almost certainly an early hymn of the church. Colossians is written probably mid-60s AD, some 30 years after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so for three decades, the church has been trying to share corporately these truths about Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11, the Carmen Christi, we call that, an early hymn that Paul incorporates and puts into Scripture. In the same way, this supremacy of Christ paragraph from Colossians 1, almost certainly an early hymn that the church would sing together that Paul grabs and he references it. Why? Because music is that thing that unites all the disparate strands and helps us to articulate and to 
to convey corporately the things that we believe about this Jesus. And so Paul references a familiar hymn to remind us of this Jesus that we corporately praise and give worship to. This Jesus, he says, is the image, the Greek term icon, familiar to us in English because we have the term icon, he is the image of the invisible God. Now that's interesting. He is the imager of the unimageable, which you can't do if you're anything less than God himself. Now remember, Paul is responding to this heresy of the early Christian church called Gnosticism. Some people believe that Christian Gnosticism was actually started by a guy named Simon the Magician from Acts chapter 8 who gets mad at Peter and says, you know what, I'm going to add my own process to this gospel thing. And it begins to spread all over what is at that time Turkey. And so a lot of your epistles, 1 John, Jude, 2 Peter, Colossians, are written to address this error of Gnosticism that said the material world was bad. And so your body doesn't really matter. Your physical body doesn't really matter. And so if you believe that your physical body doesn't really matter, it's just a sinful, fallen, condemned thing, you'll either react one of two ways. You will either be trying always to enslave it with legalism and moralism, or you will be completely free to, quote-unquote, erroneously enjoy it however you see fit. Licentiousness, what the King James would call concupiscence antinomianism, just full-on rampant sin. Both are equal and opposite errors. And so Paul is going to say, no, 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 no. This Jesus actually did have a human body, and he's forever human. Stay tuned. And he is the imager of the unimageable. What the Gospel of John will say, he explains, he expresses, he exegetes the Father. Only one who is also divine could do so. This is a very strong declaration from the Apostle Paul that this Jesus is not just the recipient of some angelic presence as the Gnostics and other contemporary cults in our day and age are trying to say. Our Jehovah's Witness friends will say that Jesus received the spirit of Michael, the archangel. That is an absolute nonsense error. It's not biblical. And Paul says, no, no, no. He's not just the recipient of an angelic presence. He is God. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, when Paul says firstborn, it created problems 2,000 years ago, and it created problems today. A lot of the sects or cults today will add a whole bunch of explanation to the Greek text, which is not present, to say that, see there, Jesus is a created being. But no, for centuries and centuries, the church has been saying there was never a time when Jesus was not. He is everlasting and eternal. This term firstborn, Paul merges a Hebrew idea and a Greek idea. It has nothing to do with sequence or order of birth. It has everything to do with rank and rights and authority and position. He is first rank over all creation. He's not the first one that was born in creation. No, no, no. He is the first ranked. He is the supreme. He is the preeminent one. Jesus is preeminent. He is the first ranked of all creation. And then we're going to find out why he is the first ranked of all creation. Because, and then Paul does something super clever, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he uses Greek Gnostic language. He takes their stick and then he beats them with it. If I was only an apostle, I wouldn't last very long, let's be clear. But Paul takes very specific Greek Gnostic language of their philosophy. They said everything had a first cause, an instrumental cause, and a final cause. And that's how they explained the world. How could there be evil in the world if there was such a thing that was God that is good? Have you heard that perhaps even in the world in which you live? 
How can God be good if there's evil in the world? And they tried to explain it by saying, well, it wasn't the original God. There was all these levels that he sort of produced, and you had to try to fight your way and ascend your way back up to get to them, and we'll give you the secrets. But the real you is the you that's inside of you, and you just need to connect that bit of you all the way back up these rungs on the ladder. And Paul says, no, 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 let me explain. It's Jesus. First cause, instrumental cause, and final cause, it's a person, not a philosophy. It's Jesus. And so he says in verse 16, for by him, all things were created. Super quick, well, duh. All things leaves out nothing. Just to make sure we understand that, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. That is the material and the physical realm and the spiritual realm, all of it. Time, space, matter, and all that is angelic and spiritual. He created it. What is Paul saying? Jesus is God. Jesus is preeminent because nobody can create themselves. Go ahead, give it a shot. How you doing? Come on. You can, how would you create yourself? That's an absolute maddening, nonsensical thing to say. But they were trying to figure this out, these Greek Gnostic philosophers. Paul says, no, he's uncreated because he created everything and therefore he can't be created because he created everything. Therefore he is uncreated. By the way, that is one of the definitions of God, that which is uncreated. Everything else is created. And then there's God, creator. And it is actually Jesus, the instrumentation of the Trinity's creative will was actually implemented by Jesus. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. That includes the material and the spiritual realm, visible and invisible. And then it gives this hierarchy, this ranking of these angelic beings, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Jesus wasn't just some angel that happened to come on some rando back in Nazareth. No, no. No, 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 no. Jesus created all of the angelic realms. He is above them all. But see, these Gnostics, they liked to sit around and try to show how smart they were, and they would rebuke all the wicked angels so that they could ascend on these rungs on the ladder to try to get back to God, and they would try to commune with the holy angels because it was all up to them to try to manufacture their ascent. And this is why the book of Jude and 2 Peter says, do not try to rebuke angels. Not even Michael does that, you sillies. Don't do that. That's addressing what the Gnostics would do. Paul says, no, no, no. He created all of them. He's not one of them. He is before them. It's what the book of Hebrews says. He is above all the angelic realm. He is the exact representation of the essence of God. Jesus is God. Thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I don't know what you think about when you think about creation, but this is convicting. The creation was very good. It was created by Jesus and for Jesus. Let me pause for a moment. I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus. For most of us, we're very image-driven people and idea-driven people. And so maybe your idea of Jesus, if you close your eyes and you have imagine Jesus in your mind's eye, maybe it's from some TV movie that featured some actor from East LA portraying Jesus, maybe something recent like The Chosen. You're like, oh yeah, that guy. What's his name? John, Jesus, whatever, the same guy. Cool. Not particularly helpful when you're grappling with and struggling with the errors that this world is bombarding you with. No, no, no. In fact, we are supposed to think of Jesus the way John, the disciple, thinks of Jesus when he sees him in Revelation chapter one. 
who is glorious, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose wounds shine like the stars, whose face is like a trillion suns. That's how we correct local error with universal truth. Oh, that's my death-proof king. That's the kingship of Jesus. And that settles pretty much all doctrinal disputes right there. Paul wants these people in Colossae, in Gentile country, in south-central Turkey that he's never met. He wants them to think rightly about this Jesus. All things were created through him and for him. And then verse 17, he amplifies. And he is before all things, the eternality of Jesus. Again, what Athanasius, one of our great church fathers, tells the Council of Nicaea, A.D. 325, there was never a time when Jesus was not. And they literally formed a little praise chorus 1,700 years ago. There was never a time when he was not. That's not the tune, but I kind of like it. It helps me to remember, oh, this Jesus is not a superhero. He's not a comic book hero. They all have weaknesses, and they're all attracted to reporters for some reason. I don't understand why. Not Jesus. No weakness. He is not a superhero that swoops into rescue. He is God. He is God. And these Colossians were beginning to wonder, is he really God or is he just one of the ways that we get back to God? No, no, Paul says, it's him. He is preeminent. There's nothing higher than him. He is before all things. And in him, everything holds together. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. They should write a song about that. Jesus, quite literally, not this rando carpenter from Nazareth. No, no, the very son of God, the ever eternally proceeding, sendable self of the Godhead Trinity holds all that exists in his will. Now, can he deal with your mess? As it turns out, the vast majority of that which exists in the material order, whether the space between galaxies and star systems or between atomic particles in a molecule, the majority of what exists is space. And there is this strange, undeterminable, unquantifiable dark matter energy, something that holds it all together. Hmm. He's got the whole world in his hands. And by the way, He's not threatened going, I don't know how much longer I can hold this. Somebody, come on. No, he's good. There's never been a crisis in the throne room of God. Now, let me pause for a moment and point out. This is all the worst news imaginable, unless he's also 100% good and he loves you. Doesn't tolerate you. Doesn't put up with you. Doesn't go, all right. No, no, no. You're his favorite which now we pivot after these first three verses. This little paragraph is sort of in this little structure we call a chiasm. It kind of goes like this and then back out again. Verse 18 is the center. It's the central thrust of this paragraph and of the entire letter that he writes to the Colossians. And he is the head of the body. Oh, this is the surprise in the New Testament that not even Saul of Tarsus and all of his learning and education and instruction, not even he could see coming from the Old Testament. Ah, that Jesus has begun, he's instigated and in, in, initiated a new people group in the world that are all indwelled by his spirit. It's the church. Ah, he's the head. Not just Mm, the one with eyes and a face. No, 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 no. The origin, the source, the ruler, and the leader of this new thing that is breaking into our midst from the future. 
He is the head, the origin and the source, and the ruler and the leader of this thing called the body. The church, universal, all over the world, through space and time. Now, 2,000 years old is this little lady, comprised of millions of members. This is why we do communion and assurance and doxology together and confession because it connects us through space and time to people who have been dead for 1,700 years, for 2,000 years, for two months, that you will never not know for all eternity. And what will you have in common? The preeminence of Jesus who loves us. And so we do these things, yes, every single week. Why? Because it makes us who we are. And he's our head, the origin, the source, the ruler, the leader, our king, This is reminding us of the preeminence of Christ. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the source, the origin. The firstborn, and then Paul does something really cool and clever. The firstborn from the dead. That doesn't make any sense. We don't usually like to mix birth and death. That doesn't usually go, that's not, but Paul does because he's telling us something. Jesus accomplished something. He is the image of the invisible God. He is divine. He is the creator of all things, and through him all things were made, whether heaven or on earth, and by him all things hold together. And he died. Like, what? You can't do that. He holds the whole cosmos in his palm. And he died? Yes. But what looked like a tomb in the earth turned out to be a womb from the earth in which a redemptive recreation has now begun. And it's bursting forth all over the place. Can you see it? Maybe. Maybe not. It happens across dinner tables when a husband will say something lovely to his bride. It happens in traffic when I let that infuriating maroon minivan get in front of me for the third time before Front Street. Why? Why do you have to be in the left lane minivan? I don't know, but come on. Because I'm from the future, you see? This is how we now think. We redemptively rethink our thinking. What looked like a tomb was a womb, and he is the first fruits. He's the blueprint of the ultimate humanness. You want to know what humankind was intended to be? Look at Jesus. You know what God's like? Look at Jesus. <gasps> He's both. Hmm, now that's really impactful and instructive and influential in our everyday walking around lives between the Sundays. Verse 18, the central verse. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The one bit of the material order, the one bit of the physical cosmos that is 100% set to rights right now is the resurrection body of Jesus Christ. And it's a down payment. It's holding the way. I don't know exactly dimensionally or spatially where heaven is, but I know that it's an environment suitable to a human being in the physical sense because there's one there now. Seated at the right hand of the Father. He's human. Do not dehumanize Jesus. He's still 100% human. Oh, and good news, he's also 100% God. More on that in a moment. He's the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, supreme, first place, first rank. Not prominent. Let me just say, as I was 
praying and preparing this week, I was personally convicted of how prominent Jesus is in my life. And I was convicted of how preeminent he is not. How so often what I need is to be the captain of my fate, the master of my destiny. And I'm dangerously and woefully unqualified for that job. But when Jesus is first place, preeminent, supreme, that takes on a whole different day-to-day, moving around mindset of my life. That in everything, he would have first place. Because here's the tragedy. He has first place, supremacy, and preeminence anyway. We've looked at that in the first four verses. He already has it. But there are two species of being in the cosmos in which the will of God is not done perfectly at all times. Demons and humans. But we have the opportunity gathered as his people, indwelled by his spirit, equipped by his word to make him first place, supreme, to bend the knee so that I'm not trying to do all the important things and occasionally when I need him, Jesus does the hard things because I just need a boost and a nudge. That ain't God, that's a superhero and they're not real. Jesus is preeminent. So we've pivoted from just creation now to redemptive recreation. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul will use this term fullness, the pleroma. He'll use it eight times in the book of Colossians because it was the Gnostics' favorite term. As they tried to say, hey, this body doesn't really matter. The real me is inside. That's all that matters. Paul will say, no, 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 no. Let me tell you about the fullness, the pleroma. They thought the pleroma was how you ascended back to God. Paul says, no, no, no. Let me tell you. The fullness, the pleroma, it's actually a person in Jesus, all the fullness of God, not part of it. Now, what being could possibly bear the fullness of God? Only God himself, which is particularly scandalous when Paul says in Colossians and in Ephesians that it's also in you. Like that's too much of a scandal of grace. But all the fullness, the 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 ascension, the achievement, the connection back to God, it's Jesus. It's a person, and he's done it already. It is finished. And God was pleased to do it this way. (laughs) He was pleased to crush his son, Isaiah says, so that many would come to be sons and daughters of God Most High. God was pleased to do it this way and not any other. So when you find yourself being bombarded by contemporary messaging that says there are many paths up the mountain, sorry, they might even be more philosophically suitable. Then God becomes flesh, lives perfectly in thought, word, and deed, dies, is buried, is resurrected, and ascends to God on high and will return again. You might actually have a better structure or wisdom or philosophy. But Scripture says that God was pleased to do it this way, this pleroma, this fullness, is what we'll find out in chapter 2 is the sum of all power and wisdom. It's what John 1, 1 will talk about, the logos. Like all gravity, warmth, and light comes together in a single person, Jesus. He is the sum of all power and wisdom. Let me remind you, he's also good and he loves you. And God was pleased to do it this way, to offer redemption through the shed blood of his son, Jesus. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, verse 20, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself, to to provide an exchange, 
The Father looked at the created order that is fallen and corrupt, not, not condemned. Uh, our bodies are corrupt and corroded, not condemned. He says, I'm going to reconcile this to myself. I need to provide an exchange. And God was pleased to do it this way, to provide an exchange, to reconciliate, to reconcile, through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now, when Scripture talks about reconciling, there is this exchange of that which is deserved for that which is undeserved. God was pleased to do it this way. Verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Now, way back in chapter 1, verse 16, we talked about things in heaven and earth. And in that context, it was talking about the material and the spiritual realm. But here in verse 20, he's just talking about the material realm, heaven and earth, like, the, like all of space and the material world of earth, heavens and earth, to reconcile. Why? Because, because of sin, all the created order is under curse. We even sing about this at Christmas. He comes to reverse the curse. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, he has come to reconcile to himself, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This, in a nutshell, is the gospel. This is our confession of faith, substitution. The innocent in place of the many guilty. That's what we, that's what we hold to, that's what we confess, that's what we declare. Undeservedly, he reconciles us to himself. Whether on earth or in heaven, all throughout the cosmos, he has made peace by the blood of his cross. This one who is utter and infinite, he is preeminent. And so we are to give him first place. That's our big idea. Jesus is preeminent. Let me see if I can practically apply this in four quick implications. Again, one of these great, great Christologies. I want to make this as practical and pertinent as I possibly can. That Jesus is preeminent. Number one goes like this. Jesus is more than merely prominent. Now, I know that we would all agree with that verbally, even confessionally or even professionally. But what we're called to do, what we're invited to do, is to make that very practical moment by moment. To treat Jesus as merely prominent rather than preeminent is to functionally dethrone him. None of us want to do that. It makes our entire world deconstruct. What we're doing when we're saying that is really, I am in first place, and I just need you to come along and ride shotgun on my program. Now, we would never say that out loud because we don't have to. We just call that Tuesday or Thursday. That's just what we do. We all do it because we have a fallen nature, because we love the idea that we are somehow in control, and we just need a boost. We just need a nudge because none of us really fully realize just how depraved we actually are. We're dangerously unqualified to control our own lives. And here's what's even crazier. Not only that, we don't even love ourselves as much as the Lord does. And we're certainly not as well-intentioned for ourselves as the Lord is. That's how gross and grotesque sin actually is. But this one, this Jesus, he is supreme. He is the sum of all power and wisdom and love. What's absolutely great news is that he is good and he loves us. When we, we get an opportunity and an obligation to repent day by day, moment by moment, and rethink our thinking, 
We literally, perhaps I can help because this is what I literally have to do. I find myself hours or days or weeks have gone by and I stop and I have to pray and I go, Lord, I am descending my own little throne that I have set up. Forgive me. Thank you because you say yes to that request. And would you reascend the throne of my life? I need reconciliation. I need recancellation. Would you cancel all over again my arrogance, my hubris, my selfism, my centrism? And I descend and I bend the knee and say, would you, the only one capable and qualified and good and loving enough, would you rule? I am yours. Command me. And then you know what he does? You know what he does? When I say that Jesus is preeminent, you know what he says? On your face, scum! No, he could, but he doesn't. He says, love one another. And it's only really then, when I descend my own throne, that I am unleashed to live my life for y'all. And he loves that. But not so long as he is merely prominent. No, no, he is preeminent. And it's so good for us individually and corporately. It actually sets all of our personal time and space in order. As though I am my own personification microcosm of the entire created order in cosmos. And when he is preeminent in first place, the planets align and they spin and they whir and they hum in perfect working order. It's really good therapy. You should try it. Second point, get very practical. Your body matters to God. Now, I'm not trying to politicize this, that, or the other, but your body, your physical body matters to God. In the 20th century, people still misunderstand, even well-meaning, well-intentioned, church-attending, Bible-reading, casserole-baking, side-hug-giving Christians still understand what your physical body is. As much as I love C.S. Lewis, as much as anybody else, he had a quote very famously given in the 20th century that he was trying to actually refute a Gnostic error, but in so doing, ironically, he added another Gnostic error. He said, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. That's good, that's correct. But then he said, you have a body. No, you're both. You are physical, you are material, you are also spiritual, you are both. This is who you are. And let me say something as, de as declaratively as I can. Do you hear the intelligence, the sum of all power and wisdom that is this Jesus? Do you really think he could have done better with you? No. And that's not just a child's nursery I'm in VBS. He literally, having the entire eternal now in his vantage point, looks at you and goes, for all eternity, that's the person that I want her to be. And he can't do any better. He can't. And when you and I begin to recognize that in ourselves and in one another, and I look at him and I just go, that's, that's, the, boy, Jesus topped out on that one. Well done. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. We like to apply that to ourselves. Cool. That's good, but that's not all that Paul's doing. He's saying, look at everyone else. Don't you see? That person is the sum pinnacle of Jesus's creativity. Your body matters to God massively. It's not a disposable non-entity. It matters. It's you. You don't have to try to enslave it with legalism or moralism. You also don't just do whatever because it doesn't matter. The real me's on the inside. Both are equally egregious errors. We all carry that 
trace echoes of Gnosticism because we're products of Western civilization. Our bodies are corrupt, but they are not condemned. So I want us to embrace this truth again. Our bodies were created by him and for him. Some of you are incredibly gifted and talented. Then there's the, uh, the rest of us. And yet, if Jesus had to do all over again, when you begin to finally embrace and understand that he would not change a single molecule of your makeup, then you are free, unleashed, to actually live wildly abandoned to love other people. Because that's what future kingdom folks do. Your body matters to God. Our bodies are not evil or even neutral and disposable. They are his very best idea. Second point, or sorry, third point. So your body matters to God. Third point, your work matters to God. What you do, I don't mean your employment necessarily, although that probably is a large part of it. I mean just what you do. The, the, the Gnostics couldn't stomach the idea that Jesus had an actual physical and human form, that he was man. But Paul tells us the fullness of God was pleased to katoiko, which is to permanently dwell. One of our central passages that remind us that Jesus will forever and always be human, physically, materially. He was human. He is human. He will be forever and ever. And so he's also the blueprint and the demonstration of utter and true humanness. Jesus is literally the man. What we see in Jesus in his earthly ministry and even after his resurrection is how he is active in his campaign of setting the world to rights, to rolling forward his program of righteousness, of God breaking forth in a dark world. This is what we mean when we talk about good works. I mentioned this last week and in Ephesians 2.10. We were saved to do good works. That's not merely random acts of kindness or just good deeds. It is an intentional, redemptive recreation to, in our little spheres of influence, wherever we are, to identify the world. Don't you ever notice that it's interesting that Adam and Eve are placed in a perfect environment with no sin and God says, make it better. What dignity! What ennobling. It's a perfect environment. God and his creativity creates it. And he goes, now, you guys, whoosh, go get them. Make it even better. And I want you to take it outside of the garden. Go global. how they do? <gasps> Tree of knowledge. Woo! But we have been redemptively recreated to be his instrumentality. Our work, our gardening is our good work, where we take the resources given by God and we rearrange them for the blessing and the building and the bolstering of the community at large. We do the exact same action when Jesus is preeminent. How does that work? How does that actually look like? So that in everything, Jesus is supreme. Can I just tell you in total transparency and, and a little bit of embarrassment and shame, every Sunday afternoon or Monday morning, I sit down on my computer and there's this blinking cursor on a white Word document and it just actively hates me. And I just think, I can't get started. This is it. I finally, I'm out. I tap out. I got no more sermons. They've heard it all. I've said it all. I'm out. And I just sit there and I go, I'm not even a Christian. I just, I don't even, I just, I can't. I got nothing left. I got nothing. But then I force myself to say these words. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. And I start typing. 
or we're up here and we're doing some stuff, we're moving chairs around, and I get this chair, and I'll move it here, and I have to remind, because I don't feel like it. I'm very busy and important, you see, but I'm not. And I have to go, move this chair there. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. Do this mundane, banal little action. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. I don't want to have to go apologize to my wife again. I mean, she's heard me say it. If something changes, I'll tell her. I'm still sorry. No, 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 no. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. And she is too. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. My work matters to God. And so I get to reprogram my program. Whether I'm schlepping gear from one campus to another or I'm typing on a blank white Word document or I'm moving chairs or cleaning up whatever happened in the second floor foyer. Somebody's kid needs a doctor. Whatever it is, Lord Jesus, you're worth this because Jesus is preeminent and so he is worth it. And when we do that, here's what will blow your mind. You have no idea the concentric radiating circles of power that come out of a single human in Christ who thinks thus and does thus. Jesus takes that kind of investment of rightly and regularly recognizing his reign and he produces 30, 60, and 100 fold that we may never fully appreciate or understand this side of glory. But a person who operates in the world 24-7 to the extent that they can, Lord Jesus, you're worth this. Jesus takes that and he exponentially increases it, which is what a person from the future who's a denizen and a citizen of that kingdom does in the present because of what he did in the past. Fourth point, your body matters to God, your work matters to God, your world matters to God. That's talking about the real world. It matters to Jesus and so it has to matter to us. We are stewards of the world in which we live. How would Jesus care about the environment that he made? Stop it. Don't politicize that. I don't care about this environmental study or that environmental study. You're a geologist. You're a millennial. Don't care. I'm talking about King Jesus, who is preeminent. And all things were created by him and for him. And that ends every discussion. If you happen to be from a particular persuasion that says, if it doesn't matter what we do in this world, it's all going to burn, I offer to you Colossians chapter 1. No, that is the wrong mindset of somebody who has been installed from the future to live in the present because of what the king did in the past. He cares about his creation. Yes, there's going to be a day where Jesus will take it all and baptize it by fire and utterly redemptively recreate it. But in the meantime, what if your and mine concern for the physical world in which we live was actually the avenue and the agency in which someone was far from God? But they began to see those people who call themselves little Christs, they care about the world too. Rather than trying to just shout down one another from one network to the next. Our world matters to God. I'm inviting you to care about what Jesus cares about because again, he is worth it. He is worth it. So maybe that just gives us cause and pause to, to listen to what might be going on. and To not react with hubris and arrogance, which is my tendency instinctively and reflexively, I confess that. But no, Jesus is preeminent. Regularly, rightly recognize your God. Just like Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20 was a hymn. There's another hymn that the church has sung for 500 years and it goes like this. 
all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, because he's above them. Bring forth the royal diadem, the crown reserved only for him, and crown him Lord of all. This Jesus is preeminent. He's worth that in all of our thoughts, words, and deeds. And when we do that, we have life abundant. Let me ask you to pray with me. Father, thank you so much for revealing your son Jesus to us in your word. We pray that your spirit would continue to amplify and increase this wonderful, massive doctrine that would actually overflow into our doxology and into our doing. Father, if there's anyone in the hearing of these words on any of our floors or watching remotely that does not know you, that is still trying to, like the ancient Gnostics, ascend through some philosophy or religion to somehow connect to you, would you remind them of this passage that because of your son Jesus, we are reconciled and we have peace, no longer at enmity, that this one man, Jesus, the one mediator between God and man, what Job prayed 2,000 years before Christ, that a mediator, an arbiter, a conciliator would stand between God and man, that Paul says it's Jesus. Would you reveal that to us? Help us to clutch that, to cling to that, to stand on it with all our weight. And would you lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, that they would be from the future kingdom as well. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us of all that we are in Christ because of all that he has done to redeem us to himself and to one another. Father, we pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.